Welcome everybody to this uh, to Chat with the Designers, your live online interactive weekly magazine for hams, homebrewers, and experimenters around the fruited plains of the world. This is your host, George N2APB, along with co-host Joe N2CX, and tonight we are going to bring you another in a continuing series of wild and exciting times on the homebrewing bench, dealing with technical topics that uh, that only you guys can really appreciate. This uh, this time we have a, a kind of an interesting session. I wanted to give a little bit of a, a quick background relative to uh, where we are. This is episode number 53, 53, and a deck of cards plus one. So we're working on the jokers now, so to speak. And uh, we uh, this evening we are going to be touching on um, a topic called component testing. And uh, just as a as a sidebar to that, those of you who have been listening in recent uh, in recent episodes, we have been chronicling the design of a, an Arduino clock, an Arduino-based precision clock, along with some RF links to provide uh, remote capability of that clock and actually some mesh networking capability for the ham station. We're taking just a bit of a break. We're backburnering that uh, uh, the Arduino topic for an episode to allow us a little bit of time to focus uh, back on our roots, and that's uh, basic capabilities and components and measurement techniques and the physical physics characteristics of, of uh, the home brewing aspects that we that we uh, that we all deal with so um, if you uh, if you are following along on the Arduino project hopefully you can uh, you can be continuing that work we will come back to it next episode in two weeks kind of extend the mesh networking topic as we go into using the series 2 XB controllers for multiple nodes in the ham shack so uh, Another piece of news is that uh, we now have our own domain for chat with the designers. In other words, the URL, the address for the whiteboard and for our homepage, no longer is residing on Dropbox. There's a story behind its use, and it solved a problem back about a year ago of lots of bandwidth from pulling uh, from MP3 podcasts being posted and a lot of people pulling down. But that problem has been solved, so we've moved back to a simpler way of life with our domain. We are at www.cwtd.org. And uh, hopefully, Joe and I have all of the links and the files transferred and everything's working. If anybody, of course, is not able to access anything along the way, please be sure to let us know. Um, another kind of a news piece is that we are indeed also working on the RSS feeds for the podcasts. So hopefully, if I can get that thing mastered, the techniques mastered, we'll be able to, you'll be able to subscribe to iTunes and maybe other services I don't know in order to have the latest and greatest episodes of Chat with the Designers automatically download to your mobile device for your listening pleasure. So that's, uh, that was another request that we're working on. And another one, too, is video clips. We are infusing a greater number of recorded video um, snippets of the different technology or principles or products or designs, whatever we're dealing with. So adds a different, uh, an additional dimension to the, uh, to the experience here on Chat with the Designers, and we really hope you like it. Others have noted already that our, uh, our links and inclusions of YouTube videos has been, uh, has been well received, and, and we appreciate that feedback. Okay, just uh, to kind of set the stage for tonight's session, Joe and I often have, uh, uh, we have a certain name for it, but we have idea luncheons. About every week or two, we get together for a brunch over at Bob Evans, down on the farm. So we have some good uh, good technical discussions over our ham and eggs and sausage biscuits and, and what have you. And uh, really, we both look forward to that a lot. And frankly, that's a lot of what uh, formed the birth of Chat with the Designers, just thinking that others would like to kind of participate in that kind of a forum. So here we are. We don't offer sausage biscuits uh, here um, on the recorded session, uh, but maybe it'll come to that at some time if you're able to join us live. So you podcasters that are listening, there's an incentive for you if I ever heard one. But along the way, we uh, discuss a lot of different technical topics and things that are current in the field, new products, oftentimes uh, dealing with different kinds of components and new components that come out. And that's, that's really what forms a lot of the, uh, the basis of our conversation. So we were doing that this last time, and, and Joe whipped out his uh, AVR transistor tester. And this we, we mentioned this quickly last week. And uh, as if you've seen it in the whiteboard this week, this is the basis for our, frankly, for our show to this week. And uh, we started talking, Joe and I started talking about the uh, measurement capabilities of different instruments that are around. 
many of us have the uh, very ubiquitous and great AADE, almost all electronics, um, LC meter 2B. And uh, this is this this AVR transistor tester is really kind of a, a low end cousin to to that. And but this offers some extra capabilities, and we're going to talk about that. And and uh, one of the things that really interested me in that is that it, it helps me uh, measure and deal with components that I use a lot here in my boat anchors. I, I do an awful lot of boat anchor home brewing as well. And capacitors are, are old capacitors. Old electrolytics are especially uh, troublesome. You got to be aware of it. And this little transistor tester, plus you know, it's it's not just transistors as you see in the in the features listing that we're going to get to. It's it's a lot more. But it offers an extra capability that we haven't seen elsewhere. And frankly, it's very very cool. So that got us into the whole topic of okay, what what about measurements uh, that we usually take on the bench that we usually use instruments to measure components on the bench. And as I said in the intro to the session here on the whiteboard, you know, everybody knows how to use some of the basic equipment that we have. You know, even the, the lowliest uh, DVM is, uh, you know, chock full of measurement capability. But there are so many other perspectives, so many other dimensions to the components that we're using. We often use components in the in the uh, in the normal capabilities of the normal window of specifications, if you will, such that uh, you know a resistor is going to work because you're at room temperature and it's carbon comp and it's or it's not carbon comp. It might be metal film and it hasn't been sitting around for a while to absorb moisture. And you can be relatively assured that the value is going to be okay pretty much as indicated on the body. But what happens if you're operating outside that uh, window of normalcy? My wife says that I often operate outside the boundaries of normalcy, especially when down here in uh, my shack and, and lab. But what happens if you're operating at 40 degrees below zero? Or what happens if it's a carbon comp that's been sitting around for ages in a very humid environment? Will it operate the same as you expect a new component that you might have grabbed from uh, from Radio Shack or, or wherever you get your parts? And same too, especially for resistors and those unmarked transistors. There's a lot of things that Joe and I were exploring about components, and that's that's what drove us to the topic here for tonight. So hopefully you'll be interested enough here to ask some questions along the way. That's what makes this program really work well. And we're going to start in. Uh, Joe's going to take it away here. He's going to drive the ship tonight. And I'm going to ask some uh, questions along the way. And please take my cue as your opportunity to also ask that that burning question that you might have in your mind is whether, uh, you know, why doesn't, uh, why why is a tantalum capacitor perhaps a better uh, better one to use in certain applications when using micro uh, as voltage sources or the substrate of a bias on a uh, on a microcontroller or other things. So, uh, Joe, I'm going to toss it over here to you and let's kind of get into it, go through the different kinds of components that we've got and what might be inside the bounds of normalcy and what's outside that window of, uh, call it the twilight zone window, that uh, the window of normalcy that we normally operate within. It gets crazy outside that window, huh? Indeed. I'm, I'm going to have to ask uh, Debbie what uh, what you mean, Jeff, operate outside the uh the realm of the normalcy. That that sounds uh, <clears throat> that sounds interesting. Although not uh, not necessarily from my perspective, just as a matter of curiosity, shall we say? Yeah. What we're going to discuss, as George mentioned, uh, and thank you for the uh, the intro there, George. Set things up. Uh, going to discuss um, the types of components we normally deal with. Try to give a good practical feel for um, um, what the components' um, limitations are and measurement limitations in using them, with a view toward uh, what the average um, home brewer or uh, do-it-yourselfer is going to be interested in. Um, not necessarily some wild, abstruse uh, uh, rocket science measurements, but things that are of, uh, of use to the everyday uh, ham and uh, home brewer. Uh, and it's a topic, as George knows, and I'm sure some of the others in the group. It's a topic near and dear to my heart. I, I, uh, I really, uh, really, really enjoy this. Okay. Anyway, the first topic is capacitors, and um, the characteristics we uh, we deal with mainly are uh, capacitance, obviously. There are other other characteristics that uh, are of interest. George mentioned um, uh, ESR, the effective series resistance of capacitors. Um, high value uh, capacitors, primarily electrolytics and uh, tantalums, have an unwanted characteristic to them called effective series resistance. Which, if you you know think of a capacitor, um, capacitor has a uh, reactance to it that decreases with frequency. But there's a there's a limiting value uh, where the the uh, 
react or the impedance across, uh, impedance through the device will uh, approach a limit, and this is uh, due to uh, practical considerations. It's the effective series resistance. Um, a very very handy thing, but not always easy to measure. There are a couple links you'll see in here with a, a wiki link and. Um, a homebrew ESR meter, and indeed a um, there's a YouTube video with a uh, homebrew ESR meter that uh, our buddy uh, Alan um, W2AEW uh, has put together. That's just for some background info, and to give you a gauge of what types of values you might see, we have a table here. Um, not going to go into depth in the table, but you can see with the various um, uh, capacitances of electrolytics at different working voltages, they, the ESRs range from um, tens of ohms down to um, hundreds of ohms. So you can get a good idea from this table just what, what sort of values you're going to expect. And if you have something that's significantly higher um, in, in your measurements in a given capacitor, it means it's probably on the way out. The, uh, the, electro, the electrolyte has dried up in there. It's not being, it's going to be as good. Other things we, um, we deal with in um, capacitors are uh, uh, film dielectric capacitors, usually used for audio and low RF. We measure capacitance, and we might want to uh, um, match capacitors when we're building a phase shift network or some sort of audio filter. The exact capacitance down to a tenth of a percent may be of uh, little interest to you, so long as it's close. Quite often, we have to match things, so it's good to have a device that lets us uh, match them. Question? Yeah, Joe, just me. Um, back just a second on the ESR. I think that's probably, I'd like to chat about that just for a moment and, and maybe see what are the effects of having a high ESR. And let's use the case uh, case example that I was talking about as far as uh, replacing or, or maybe not replacing uh, capacitors in a boat anchor. Or it doesn't even have to be a boat anchor, but any old piece of equipment that has been turned on in ages has capacitors in there that might have been dried. Uh, the electrolyte might have been dried up in them. What happens when that's the case? How would you go about testing to see if you need to do that? Or maybe how would you use this table as a guide for doing that? All righty, certainly. Yeah, the uh, the table, as I said, gives you uh, some idea of, of what to look for. Let's, for example, look at a um, 100 microfarad capacitor. Um, a low voltage capacitor might have 1.2 ohms up to um, as low as uh, 0.15 ohms at, at higher voltage, 160 volts. What that is, is, as I mentioned, the limiting value of reactants in there. Um, the effect will be that if the thing is used in a um, power supply filter, um, like, like coming from the 60 hertz line, uh, you'll have increased ripple on the, on the uh, capacitor because it won't be able to filter the AC line as well. Similarly, if it's used as a bypass capacitor um, to uh, keep any uh, noise or uh, hum from a uh, power supply power supply line out of a uh, say an audio circuit. Um, if this effective series resistance goes too high, it lessens the ability of the uh, capacitor to do a good filtering job of keeping the hum out of there. And um, as you may have noted in some of the uh, boat anchors, George, when they have the, uh, the electrolytics that are going, you get a lot of hum and noise in there. One other thing that's not, not necessarily boat anchor, but I did want to mention in terms of ESR, with some of the modern voltage regulators, they need a good um, filter capacitor on their input and output. And if the effective series resistance of that is too high, the capacitor won't properly filter, and some of the uh, fancy dan, uh, particularly low dropout regulators, will tend to oscillate. So uh, another case where you need a good one. Um, basically, that's it for the boat anchors. Does that answer your question, George? It sure does, Joe. Thanks a lot. Okay. And uh, as George mentioned, uh, others, if you have questions along the way, just uh, interrupt me, and uh, I'll try to answer them if I can. Um, there are another type of capacitors we run into briefly or frequently as uh, home brewers is ceramic dielectric capacitors. They're uh, ubiquitous. That means they're all over the place. Um, they're used for RF uh, bypasses, uh, RF coupling, audio and power, audio um, coupling and power bypassing. There are several different types. We discussed types in um, an earlier session, but um, basically NPO types, NP0 types have a low uh, temperature coefficient and low loss. They're used for RF. The other types um, generally have higher capacitance, but they, they might have um, more loss to them. They wouldn't be good in tuned circuits. And uh, they they vary frequency, yeah, they vary their capacitance with the uh, temperature. 
Um, I've noted, uh, just incidentally, uh, it's a handy thing to know, but I found it by accident. I had a capacitor that I, I was really curious about what that kind of dielectric it was. Well, you can look up the characteristics for various dielectric types in um, catalogs and data sheets from the manufacturers. And if you heat the, a given capacitor and measure its capacitance, you can get an estimate of what type of uh, dielectric is in there. So that you can tell, you know, if you if you hit the thing with a uh, hot air gun close to it and take it up 10, 20 degrees and you see the capacitance vary by uh, 20%, you know that that's not a very stable capacitor. So you can do the same thing with the cold spray also. Um, have you ever noticed any of this, George, uh, with capacitors varying with uh, with temperature that you I didn't have. expect? Yes, I have. And um, sometimes it's a perplexing thing, too. I mean, even if we haven't gotten to it yet, but even inductors, strangely enough, uh, mostly power inductors or power, you know, and, and the power output stage um, tend to vary uh, value when using a heat spray, uh, I'm cold spray on it. Indeed, it can be quite perplexing. And it's nice to be able to uh, understand a little bit about them so that you can look for some of these effects and uh, uh, in some cases pick a better component to type. Inductors, uh, that's a big subject. I won't go into it very deeply, but um, um, some of the things we worry about with uh, RF inductors are straight capacitance, um, and my outline is a little out of order here, but I'll just go into that. Um, all inductors have some straight capacitance. That is, between the turns, um, the turns act like capacitor plates, so there's a little capacitance between the turns, so it's not a any inductor is not a pure inductor. There is some parallel capacitance uh, associated with it. And um, one of the things you want to do is to try to get a handle on this um, because it will make the apparent inductance, um, that is the what, what the inductor looks like, it'll make it look different. And one nasty part of that is that um, the apparent inductance will change with frequency because as you go higher and higher in frequency, the capacitive reactance decreases and it tunes the inductor and um, cancels out some of the inductance. Uh, in fact, it, it'll reach a point called the um, uh, self-resonance frequency where the um, capacitor and um, inductance will resonate. So it'll actually look like a parallel tuned circuit, very high impedance, and then after that, uh, go down. The the um, I won't go into a lot of it, but the, the upshot is that um, when you have, for example, a 10 microhenry inductor um, and you, you use it at different frequencies, the apparent inductance will change. Um, if you measure it at the uh, frequency where you're going to use it, you'll come up with one number. But if you measure it at another frequency, it'll look like a different inductance. So you wonder, gee, what the heck? Is that thing out of tolerance? Uh, in particular, the AADE LC meter is very handy. But it, it operates by resonating uh, components you're measuring down somewhere around the broadcast band. So if you're using the component up at um, 10 megahertz, say, the, the apparent inductance of an inductor will be a lot different. So just something you have to keep uh, keep in mind. And um, uh, another thing that, that kind of gets you, if you're using a, a particular toroid in a uh, high tune, IQ uh, tune circuit, um, the apparent inductance, having it uh, not what you think, can tune it well off frequency. And those of you who played with toroids um, may have noted that as you spread the toroid turns apart or bunch them together on the core, uh, it changes the apparent inductance because the stray capacitance gets more and more as the turns are spaced closer together or less and less as you spread them apart. Indeed, some of the uh, popular ham kits um, tell you to um, experiment with spreading or, or um, bunching together the turns to get low-pass filters in the output so that you get maximum uh, power, get the filters tuned to the right frequency, uh, and you get maximum power out, power out of them. Kind of something you play with, uh, and I played a, a bit with um, my AADC LC meter, um, and you can see quite a bit of difference there. If you measure them at the actual operating frequency, um, it's even more apparent because that's generally above the, uh, the broadcast band, uh, above a megahertz or so. Um, another thing you see is that uh, ferrite inductors particularly, uh, if you measure them, not going to talk much about it, but they're, both their loss and their permeability change with frequency. So, um, you know, it may have a, a reasonable loss value at uh, a megahertz, but if you use it at 10 megahertz or, or 30 megahertz, the loss may go up. Similarly, the inductance uh, varies with frequency because the permeability changes. If you measure them with an AADE meter, you're measuring down uh, in the area of a megahertz or so, 
Um, you may have, um, you know, a hundred microhenry choke, but if you operate it up at uh, 20 megahertz, it might only be 50 microhenries. So there's some quite quite a bit of variability there. And if you're doing really fine work, uh, very careful work, you might need to use an instrument uh, such as a Q-meter that will let you operate at the uh, uh, at the operating frequency where you're going to be. Uh, in an earlier segment, we talked about a uh, question. Oh, just me again, Joe, your friendly fly on a wall. Um, that's actually a recommended practice, is it not? Because trying to get exact inductances is really tough, um, even from an established schematic. So using an, a meter, such as the uh, LC meter, um, or this new thingy that we're uh, we're talking about here tonight, um, is is a good thing to do in order to to spread or compress the turns to get that apparent res, uh, inductance to be closer to the design goal, right? Absolutely. Yeah. There is enough variation from that and also from the uh, variability of the, um, the core characteristics of permeability that it's always a good idea for um, uh, circuits where you, you want to get things dead on to, uh, to actually measure the device. Try to get it as close as you can so that uh, whatever you're building will work properly. Okay. Um, resistors. I'm not going to say a lot about resistors. We're all fairly uh, familiar with them, but obviously the component value is, in, uh, is of interest and um, uh, you want to know how close they are. As George mentioned, you know, there are component tolerances. Um, generally, we want to we measure, we want to know that the thing is within, say, 5% of, of uh, what we expect. And as they age, um, resistors do vary significantly. I've seen some 25-year-old resistors um, increase by uh, 20 or 25% in resistance. So... Something to keep in mind uh, if you're dealing with boat anchors or, or older equipment, or if you've come up, uh, come across an, a, an estate sale, a, a treasure trove of resistors, uh, just be careful and measure what you get because um, it might not be what you expect. Again, uh, matching can be important um, if you're building uh, audio filters, um, uh, active filters or whatever, or uh, in some cases, uh, building voltage dividers. Uh, matching might indeed be uh, of more import than the actual uh, value down to a percent. You have, might have to match resistor components. And some of the uh, measurement devices, particularly the uh, component tests we'll talk about later, have that as a feature to uh, be, be able to match match components. And one of the things that bites you um, at RF is the self-inductance of uh, resistors. Depending on how they're constructed, um, they will have some serious inductance that can make them look um, uh, Quite a bit different than just a resistor. Uh, the, the pathological case is wire-wound resistors where they're wound from uh, high-resistance wire so that uh, at uh, power line frequencies or audio frequencies, they may be quite resistive, but they might have inductances of something in the uh, microhenries where uh, uh, at RF. So if you have a, you know, what you think is a 50-ohm resistor, you try to use it as a dummy load, but it's a wire-wound resistor, it might be a combination of inductance and uh, resistance so that the, uh, the actual terminal impedance won't be anywhere near 50 ohms. That can, uh, that can get you. Uh, there are other wrinkles to that. That's primarily what we deal with. And indeed, the, um, the component tester that we'll be talking about later has the ability to at least measure some self-inductance, which, uh, which can be quite handy. Um, any questions about uh, anything uh, we've gone over so far? Perhaps want some amplification or clarification on some of the points? Semiconductors, there's an awful lot of tests you can do on semiconductors, but some of the things, practically speaking, we want to know um, is with uh, diodes, we need to identify the lead connections. What's the anode and what's the cathode um, of, the, of the diode? And uh, several testers are very good for uh, telling you this. Another thing that can be very, very handy, if you're dealing with um, um, diodes um, where they're, say, in series with your, your power uh, power line, your DC power line, you want to know what the forward drop of the uh, diode is. Um, practically speaking, there is always some drop there. Um, and, uh, you know, silicon diodes are different than germanium diodes or are diff different than uh, Schottky diodes. So it's nice to be able to measure the uh, forward drop. And in some cases... Uh, if you're making a match detector or some sort of a bias circuit, you might want to, and you use multiple diodes, you might want to be able to match the forward drop of the diodes. A very, very handy thing to do. And uh, some test instruments let you do that pretty easily. That's a very handy thing to know. Similarly, LEDs, um, depending on the uh, color of the LED, the way they're doped, have different forward drops. Uh, so when you're trying to pick a current limiting resistor for an LED, it's nice to know what the forward drop of the LED is going to be so that you can pick the right resistor value. 
Transistors, there are lots of characteristics you can measure on them. Um, primarily, uh, you know, at a low level, you want to know the, the lead connections, um, what, what's the base, uh, the emitter, and collector. Um, of an unknown device, you know, you may think you know what the leads are, but uh, sometimes manufacturers uh, fool around with the pin connections, and you don't know quite what you've got. Uh, things you want to measure are possibly the base emitter voltage drop, similar to the diode drop mentioned above, uh, the beta, the uh, forward gain, current gain of the transistor, and particularly with the FETs, it's nice to know the transconductance, the gain of the device, and some uh, some uh, testers allow you to measure those characteristics so that you know what you got. Um, ICs, they're pretty specialized. Uh, there are special purpose test uh, test pieces for them. Generally for ham use, you have to make up your own little circuit to try to characterize what's going on. <laughs> Rick says, uh, tell um, FETs from transistors. Indeed, that is a good point. If you have unknown devices, um, it's nice to have a tester that will pick them apart. And we'll talk about two of two such testers uh, a little later on. Um, transistors, SCRs, and DIACs, um, it's handy to know the pin connections for those because uh, there can be a lot of lack of standardization. Also, uh, turn on and turn off voltages on their, uh, on their control, uh, control pins. Uh, some testers handle them. Um, any more questions before I go on to quartz crystals? Okay, as I say, uh, you know, if there are any questions, um, please feel free to interrupt me because um, otherwise I'll just charge on and I, I don't want to get to don't want to get to the point where uh, I'm just uh, whizzing through stuff. Um, if you're doing some particular um, uh, filters, particularly uh, in some cases oscillators with quartz crystals and ceramic resonators, there are a couple parameters that are nice to know. Um, the effect, the series resistance, series resonance frequency of the uh, resonator, the parallel resonance, and um, which are frequencies, uh, and the equivalent parameters, uh, the um, parallel capacitance, there's an internal series equivalent capacitance, series equivalent inductance, and a um, series loss resistance. Uh, those are not something you normally get from a data sheet. Quite often you have to measure them. And if you're building, if you're rolling your own um, uh, filters, as many do in uh, home brewing, uh, you have to measure those parameters. Uh, you have to match the uh, parameters in some cases and, and uh, measure the component values so that you can put them in some sort of design program to uh, get the filter you want. Um, lots of um, lots of stuff out there. You can do a Google search and find uh, many means of doing it. But um, we particularly like the uh, Jim Corchy K8IKY methods. Um, he designed a uh, PVXO tester, um, which uh, is a variable crystal oscillator for uh, doing these types of measurements. Uh, and there's a uh, link to the web page here. Uh, which details that there was a kit available at one time it is no longer available, but it's not difficult to duplicate. And indeed, Jim also um, had a um, uh, did a talk and wrote a paper on how to do those measurements using PVXL, so that you can characterize um, quartz crystals. And uh, the same techniques work for uh, ceramic resonators as well, uh, if you're using uh, those devices. Okay, go ahead, George. There's no simple um, measurement technique that one can do with a DVM or one of our nifty-difty component testers that we've got here regarding uh, the um, crystals or resonators, Joe? No, unfortunately not. They're, they're their own little beast. Um, the test equipment tends to be special purpose. One thing you can measure is the... Uh, the parallel capacitance, which is uh, called the holder capacitance, uh, which will be in the order of a couple of picofarads, that can be measured without special equipment. But um, the other parameters take um, take some special um, uh, test setups and uh, special techniques. Okay, okay. And just as an aside, uh, based on Rick's question a moment ago, telling FETs from transistories, um, I grabbed a, uh, a, um, a bipolar transistor and uh, an FET, two devices, and I actually got it mixed up as I was walking over to the bench. Plugged them into our nifty, uh, our versatile com uh, component tester, and it indeed really, really details the difference, well, it details the par uh, parameters, the parametrics of, of the devices, so it tells the differences uh, quite nicely. We'll talk about that in a bit, but uh, um, I hadn't tried the transistors, as you'll see in the photos. I did everything but the transistors, and it works pretty nicely. Yeah, what's really cool, I believe that the tester also will tell you 
when you have an FET, whether it's a, a junction FET or a MLS FET, and whether it's a P-junction or N-junction device, which is uh, very handy to know if you have an unknown device. Absolutely. I'm looking at it here. It says an N-E-MOS, and uh, the pinout is uh, 123, pins, uh, pins 123, a GDS, of course, gate, drain, and source. It even shows a diode sim um, symbol, a capacitance, and oops, the display just went away. Um, it was like the forward, the equivalent of the forward drop, I think. Yeah, yeah it's handy. Uh, there is one difficulty with it, and I only mention it because uh, you're you're doing it right now. You're testing it right now. Um, there is no easy way to tell with a a um, junction FET. Um, you can tell what the gate is, but it's tough to tough to distinguish between the source and drain. And some of the uh, devices, particularly ones used for uh, um, UHF use, have an unsymmetrical uh, construction, so source and drain are not interchangeable. Oh, very cool. And maybe that's the reason for its display of the diode symbol just to the right of the pinout. Um, I'll make a separate photo of this of this uh, of this display unless it's already on the you know the manual for it. But it might do that indication to ensure that distinguishing the from the uh, the source from the drain. As you, you said, sometimes they're interchangeable, and uh, of course this time many times it's not. I'm using the two N seven thousand, very uh, often used at least in my designs, and it's good to know which is which. Even uh, and I think it is necessary to know which is which. Um, the drain and the source are not interchangeable. Okay, Joe, why don't you carry on and get into the appropriate test equipment. And just as a note to everybody kind of listening along, I updated the, um, the web page um, with three, uh, three video. I embedded three YouTube videos from Ellen. Um, and W2AEW has some procedures that he shows with a scope and a meter, I think. Um, about doing some basic measurements of components using a scope. So when you get a chance, you can click that and actually see those too. But we added those, Joe, to the appropriate test equipment section, which we're getting to right now. Cool. Yeah, well, I, I didn't uh, didn't update yet, but uh, well, let me take a second update and drop the carrier. Yeah, so in doing that, if anybody hasn't done it, just there's a refresh button up at the top of your window. Usually it says uh, just refresh the browser, and that pulls down the latest uh, web page that's posted for the latest HTML that's posted for this web page, this, our whiteboard. So if you do that, it'll probably bring it back to the same spot, but it'll also have the latest uh, stuff that I put on during the talk here. Okay, yes, I, I so did that. Very good, very good. Uh, a little more, uh, a little another, another wrinkle or two. Uh, more for me to check out actually once the session is over too. Um, okay, some of the some of the appropriate test equipment, the common stuff we might have around, and things that uh, um, from going from the mundane to the specialized um, are um, digital multimeters and VOMs. They're very good for the ordinary things we do, uh, measuring volts and amps and uh, uh, continuity. You know, uh, if you have uh, when you want to tell whether something's connected together or not, um, that's good. And also a resistance. A very common uh, function they have is measuring resistance. And it's uh, it's close. Digital multimeters are better than VOMs, and uh, most of them are within a couple percent. Pretty good. You can also tell uh, on many of them diode polarity. Um, they have a special position. Word of warning, um, if you just use the red and black leads and you don't know the device, uh, for resistance, they may be interchanged. So unless you know your particular device um, or the device has a particular, uh, your, your meter has a diode polarity position, um, don't get it backwards. Uh, some of them, even the, the common uh, Harbor Freight meter, are able to test transistors, and many uh, digital multimeters are able to uh, measure capacitance and inductance Although generally uh, it's higher capacitances and you'd use it RF, it's in the microfarads, and uh, the inductance would be above the uh, the microhenny range. But uh, it's handy to measure uh, other devices with other uh, high value components. There's a, a company in uh, England, I believe it is, uh, Peak. Uh, their URL is listed here, Peak Instruments, which uh, makes a, a whole bunch of very handy uh, Peak component testers. I have one that George gave me uh, that measures. Uh, uh, semiconductors, very, very handy. Dedicated purposing just for semiconductors. Uh, does some of the characteriz characterization that I mentioned above. 
They also make analyzers for um, RLC, resistors, uh, inductors, and capacitors, and for effective series resistance, uh, dedicated um, testers just for that, and um, one for network cables to identify them and their characteristics, and uh, yet another one for thyristors and uh, triacs. Uh, they're very good devices. Uh, they're generally dedicated purpose, um, very accurate and very good. Um, but as I mentioned, they're dedicated purpose and they tend to be um, a little expensive. And uh, to handle a wide spectrum of components, you need um, a multiplicity of them. Um, you know, if you're in the business for yourself, fine. For the average uh, ham, you spend a lot of money to get that, that capability. Although I won't give up my, my peak uh, uh, 70 factor analyzer. Something that uh, George and I both have mentioned that is very, very handy is the AADE LC meter. It's currently up to uh, re revision two, I believe. The um, uh, link for that is uh, listed here. It's a very good device for testing um, RF components for inductors and uh, capacitors, capacitors up to a couple thousand microfarads. No, a couple thousand picofarads, certainly not microfarads. Um, it has the ability to zero both the inductance and capacitance so that uh, you get very, very precise readings, very accurate readings. And um, its measured accuracy has been as good as a percent or two in, in many cases. So very, very handy. It's long been a standard for uh, many hams, and um, everybody who has one will recommend that you use it. One limitation I mentioned earlier, though, is that um, it operates at its own frequencies, test frequencies. Um, so you can't characteristics you can't characterize particularly inductors at the operating frequency you want. It'll be somewhere in the uh, in the broadcast band, somewhere around the megahertz. But very very handy overall, and I certainly use one of them at least every couple of days on the bench. Todd is trying to um, talking about um, the bare bones testers. Yeah, we're going to be talking about them. If you want to go high end. Um, one of the one of the great benches bench test equipment pieces is an LCR bridge inductance capacitance reactance. Um, the um, very nice one, fairly modern one, is the General Radio 1608. Um, it's a manual device. Uh, it can be used to measure anything from picofarads to microfarads. Um, you can measure ESR. You can measure dissipation factor of capacitors. Um, you can measure um, inductors from teeny tiny inductors to huge ones. And in fact, um, it's so versatile that uh, in a, it seems like another lifetime I was working on a, uh, a program for the Air Force that uh, used um, LF transmit antennas, 300-foot towers with huge top hats on them. And we actually used these GR bridges in the field to uh, to measure the uh, uh, Characteristic impedance, which was a couple ohms and the capacitance of uh, of that tower. Very very handy instrument. Uh, again, it's uh, it's it's uh, manual. It's old, but uh, still very good and uh, reasonably expensive. Now there are obviously other commercial bridges and LCR meters that are much more uh, modern, uh, much more expensive. But uh, uh, the old GR bridges, uh, for those who've used them, have a place near and dear to their hearts. That's a Got pretty a cool looking there. thing, Joe. Lots of knobs. I love knobs, and they're all symmetrical too. <laughs> and you love nulling things as well. A couple links here with a wiki page for an LCR meter just so you know what they are. And um, and another uh, link on some usage of um, uh, LCR meters. It's kind of neat reading, even if you're not going to use one, just to see how they used to do things and, and how that sort of thing works. Another type of instrument that's on the high end that is near and dear to my heart is a Q-meter. Um, I know that uh, George just got a new Q-meter. It's a vacuum tube Q-meter, but it's, uh, it's a very good one. It's a Bolton 260A. Um, these are tunable instruments that operate in uh, generally the range from perhaps LF up through, uh, well, you can get them up through VHF. Most of the common ones operate only up to 30 or 50 megahertz. But they're used for very precision measurements of um, uh, RF inductors and capacitors. You can measure inductance, capacitance, and indeed also Q, um, of, of an analog of the, um, the loss of uh, an inductor. And if you're doing some very precision work with um, RF, um, with filters or, or other things, you may have the need to do this. Uh, they're very, very good for uh, characterizing RF components. Uh, the one I happen to have, I, I was able to upgrade um, to an HP 4342A, which is a very good modern instrument, very, very handy. Um, most hams won't have a need for them, but if you're going to do a lot of RF work, uh, particularly filters, um, you'll want to get hold of a Q-meter. Again, a couple links. Uh, there's a, uh, a wiki page. There's a handy um, homebrew Q-meter from a guy named Lloyd Butler, a link for that. And um, 
an, an, one of the original articles on Q-meters from the HP archive on the Boonton Q-meter. Um, interesting reading, uh, just to give you the fundamentals of uh, what they are. And George George has a uh, comment on the the, uh, <laughs> the chat window about some of the things I've done in the past. Uh, very, very high-end ideas uh, for measuring components um, at RF up uh, into VHF, UHF um, are vector network analyzers. These do very precision measurements of, uh, and we won't get into it here, but you can read up on it. Um, very good for uh, measuring components, characterizing components, antennas, filters, and uh, many RF um, um, RF uh, assemblies. Um, it's, it's overkill for most home brewers, but once you get really into it, uh, they're handy to use too. And parathetically, uh, after I used the uh, the GR bridge, I convinced my uh, my uh, company, the company I work for, to get a nice uh, HP vector network analyzer, which made my antenna measurements a whole heck of a lot uh, easier to do. Uh, a couple links here again for uh, network analyzers, and indeed a popular homebrew uh, vector network analyzer is by N2PK. So we have a link to his page too. And finally, oh no, we've got a couple other things. Here's the embedded links that George mentioned from Alan W2AEW. And Alan, if you're listening, would you like to talk about your uh, your three uh, um, YouTube pages here? Okay, yeah, I'm listening. Uh, how's uh, the audio here? I'm up in a hotel room up in Massachusetts, so I uh, wasn't sure how well everything would work with the laptop here. Sounds good. We can understand you. It even sounds like you. All right, very good. So, um, yeah, so the three, vi three videos that uh, George linked up here, uh, one of them I just posted uh, last week, is uh, showing um, a way you can use an oscilloscope and a very simple homebrew square wave generator you know, made from a little uh, Schmidt trigger uh, inverter. How uh, you can use that to measure uh, capacitors by simply uh, putting them into an RC circuit and measuring, uh, you know, the time constant. Uh, it's actually uh, quite easy if you set up uh, the vertical scale such that the the signal occupies eight divisions. As you know, uh, an RC time constant uh, at, at when t equals you know one RC time constant, you've basically raised signal up by you know to 63 percent of its final value and basically that's very close to five divisions if the total number of divisions that you're using is eight so it's a real real simple thing to do to uh, to measure the value of capacitors on a scope and then uh, to measure inductors uh, I basically use the same method that the AADE uh, meter uses internally where you put the unknown inductor in parallel with a known capacitor and you, you ring it with a, uh, you know, some high frequency energy and, and uh, measure the resonant ring frequency that you get out of it and then calculate out the inductance. So that's what the first video talks about. The second one is uh, a little bit more of a general purpose uh, tester for looking primarily at semiconductors um, to uh, look at diodes and transistor junctions and things like that. It's a very, very simple uh, technique that's been around since probably the 40s. Uh, called an octopus, uh, where you basically uh, throw a small AC signal across a component and measure the voltage across the component and the current through it. And it's kind of a single trace curve tracer. Uh, so there's a video that talks, shows how to build that and how you can use it. And uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, scopes, hobby grade scopes that uh, have a component test function and that's basically all it does. So I show that video. And then the third video is a um, one of a an ESR meter that I put together about uh, seven years ago, um, and it shows the circuit and, and how it works, and then shows uh, an example of it being used. So, uh, uh, so yeah, those, that's what those are. And uh, you know, feel free to go take a look. And you know, I try to put enough information in each of those videos so you can go off and. Uh, and duplicate what I did uh, without having to go and look up too much uh, additional information. So anyway, Joe, uh, thanks for that. Uh, back to you, W2AEW. Thank you very much, Alan. It's always good to, uh, to be able to um, get you involved here. You, you know a lot of stuff. And you have you have good things, um, <laughs> good things, good videos, and uh, lots of information. We appreciate you uh, being able to participate here and to uh, tell us about some of that. All right, that's pretty much a description of most of the test equipment. The only thing we have remaining is uh, the cool product of the month, and I think I'll, I'll turn it back over to George and let him uh, uh, take the reins here. 
Okay, thank you, Joe. And nice job overviewing all the different components. Um, in the past, we've had uh, we, we've had sessions on uh, kind of like the orthogonal aspect of tonight. Not the measurement of components, but the measurement devices for components. So different meters that could be used. Here we're talking about the components themselves. And we, I guess we would urge you, all listeners, and um, to take a look at the different parameters and explore them. The better you understand your um, um, the components and the the environment, the configuration that the component is being used in, the better you're going to know how your circuit is going to operate. We don't have enough time here to really delve into specifics. Maybe next time what we can do, Joe, or at least to think about it, is to have another uh, analyze this session. We haven't had one of those in a bit. We take a simple circuit and analyze it relative to the component parameters in the environment, i.e. the circuit and the voltages and the frequencies that are used that the component is used and maybe just consider, you know, what was the designer thinking when choosing that component or conversely, what would happen if you chose the wrong kind of component, a wrong, oh, I don't know, a transistor with the wrong <clears throat> um, bandwidth um, capability on it or too much bandwidth and, and what how would the circuit operate differently than perhaps intended. So I guess we would urge you to kind of look at uh, look at your components with a different eye and, uh, and you know, I, I'm Joe and I are fond of of movies, and and my, one of my favorites is Dirty Harry. And you know, you remember the uh, well, at least one of the quotes of, of his is, you know, man, a man's got to know his limitations. Well, in this case here, as the subtitle for tonight's presentation is, a meter's got to know its own limitations, or more importantly, you, the user, have got to know the limitations of the meter, or in this case here, the the component um, capability, the component um, parameters in order to use it effectively. So the cool product of the month is this AVR tester. It's called the AVR transistor tester. We're a little bit confused on this uh, naming of it anyways, because um, it was done by a couple of, Ger uh, uh, one German, I think they're both German, Marcus Friedrich, and um, was the original designer of the project. Joe, you can speak up here in just a moment. Um, and he did like, well, let's just call that a version one. And then there was a version two that I call, uh, that, that Carl Kubler was uh, installed Instrumental and really adding a lot of software features to it. Uh, AV, it's got an AVR microcontroller in it, and uh, Carl apparently put a lot of extra capabilities in there. I think Carl was the one who really did the manual for it. Uh, we've got the manual listed. We've got a full set of its capabilities, you know, the features or operational characteristics, like 25 of them. And it's very interesting to read. We don't have time to go through it here, but we would urge you to, to do that. There's a lot of stuff packed into this little, uh, oh gosh, Joe, how much was it? $25? Uh, 20 bucks or something yeah it was basically i think uh, 24 bucks and five bucks shipping something like that yeah and how about the uh, version one version two thing do you have that uh, in hand do you, uh, do you understand that no, I don't. <laughs> I don't have a handle on that. There are several versions out on the web. Well, I, I, if you look at the text there, apparently the uh, German guys uh, came up with this, and um, um, some Chinese companies cloned it and sell it. There are several out on the web. Um, the, the link we have uh, there for Lemon Blue um, with the eBay item eBay item number is the latest and greatest, the one we got. There's several others that are less expensive, but they have uh, lesser capabilities. Um, and apparently, um, if you look at all the documents, you can see that there was an evolution. And I believe what's uh, Lemon Blue Cells right now is the uh, latest and greatest. Okay. So that that's good. And I guess if you were to order it, uh, 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 Terry just told us that it's like $27 uh, with shipping um, currently. So that's a pretty good price. And, and I think it came pretty quickly. So um, that was uh, that was something you, you got your hands on for us, Joe. So we won't get too much into its capabilities. It's all described here. Um, what we wanted to really do is to um, talk about the packaging a little bit. Maybe some, it's kind of mundane, but it's also packaging in this case makes it a really useful uh, um, instrument, more useful than, or at least more quickly usable and more protected than just sitting open circuit board on the uh, on the bench. So what you see, um, actually, if I have to dial down here too. So what we did is we picture what we did is we um, we took those components um, that were that are listed in the is shown on the table there the project the Radio Shack project enclosure some binding posts a nine volt battery a file some screws standoffs yada yada and essentially what we did is we took that that uh, project enclosure cut a hole in it put the LCD in it 
mounted the three terminals, extended what I call remoted. We remoted the um, the measurement terminals, the start or the test push button, the LCD, in order to bring those up to the front panel and so we can conveniently mount the board in the bottom of this plastic box. There's, there's ample room in this box. You could you could do a lot of things with it, but that's a nice handy box. It's a good handheld type of thing. And uh, and uh, we created a, a template for the front panel. And some of you guys are, are into, you know, making the, the, the front panel template, the front panels and nice front panels. This one came out pretty well, I think, at least for me. And uh, the technique I used was uh, using Visio. Visio. I um, created a one-to-one -one type of representation of what I wanted, uh, where I wanted the components to be. And then um, it turned out to be the, the, the front plate of the cabinet was four inches by six inches, which I, it dawned on me when it was coming time to actually figure out how I was going to print that out and laminate it or whatever. And heck, that's the same size as the four by six um inch uh, photos you know photo paper that you can put in your printer i think it's maybe it's called a4 i'm not sure but it's the four by six uh, inch photographic paper <clears throat> and then so with some nice coloring in the visio diagram you print it out one to one size you adjust your paper size to be four by six and voila it prints out sort of like really well and it's got a nice glossy surface that after it dries it's, it's relatively durable it doesn't scratch off and if you drop your fruit juice on top of it um, you know, it doesn't melt, uh, the alcohol doesn't melt, melt the, uh, lettering away. And you can even be more, um, more professional and not, and not drink fruit juice while you're making your projects. But, um, you can uh, take it over to Kinko's or Staples or whatever and, uh, put some, uh, you know, put it through their laminator, put a nice, uh, plastic surface over top of it. Then I use a hand punch. We've talked about these tools in the past here in the program. I use a hand punch from, uh, Harbor Freight and it's got varying sizes of, uh, diamond diameter punches and a couple is all I used um, uh, the larger one for the screws in the corner and some of the and then maybe the push button and then I used a smaller one for the terminals uh, the measurement terminals and it's just really easy to kind of just reach over like a big uh, well, like a big hand punch like you do you know in the old school days you know paper punch for your three ring binder kind of thing and it pops that uh, nice clean hole and again, uh, with a template that you can download, uh, the PDF template, make sure you just print it out one-to-one -one size. You can then print that out and cut it out and paste it over the, the original, the native, the, uh, the virgin plastic cover and uh, cut it accordingly, or at least mark it, and then cut it with a drill. And then if you use a, a scribe, you can cut out the hole for the, you can scribe out, you know, put scratches in the surface at the rectangular hole for the LCD, then use successive uh, drill holes uh, to ultimately make the rough rectangle and then file that down to nice, uh, as, as smooth as you can get it. Turns out it's not overly critical that you get that exactly all of the roughness out of it or just the right size. In fact, maybe just a tad overcut is a little bit better than undercut because the front panel serves as a bit of a bezel. It covers the roughness of the edge and it turns out uh, pretty much okay. So so um, slide down just a little bit on the page and you would see what I call the uh, the extending cables. You see like the wire harnesses. So um, in order to extend the um, the display and the push button and the three terminals, we just had to put some wires on there at the appropriate spot and um, use that to extend or remote the, the capabilities for that, that user I.O. And then after you cut out the uh, the template, after you print the version of the template with the color and so on, which is, this, again, the same template that you would use to cut the front panel, the plastic of the front panel, which is like butter. I mean, it's really easy to do. So take your time, and uh, it, it comes out pretty well. Then put some double sticky tape, double, skitsies, double sticky scotch tape um, on the panel, and very carefully, you only get a couple of shots at doing this before it, it inadvertently sticks and you can't take it off too easily. But uh, carefully align and then drop the uh, the template, uh, the, the, the overlay that you created onto the panel with the holes in it and uh, kind of press it down and voila, you got, you got it attached. Sliding down just a little bit more, you see the uh, a pretty common technique that has been talked about in the QRPL and QRP Tech and so on. Little adapters that are uh, are nice for adding to the five-way uh, binding posts. You can use those five-way binding posts as they are in order to measure most devices. But it's kind of convenient if you have an adapter such as shown here with some alligator clips that allow you to uh, just clip the leads into the alligator clips a little bit easier perhaps than 
using the five-way binding posts. And if I had had more time in creating this thing, I might have put like uh, screws through the alligator clips to allow the clips to turn closer or farther away from each other to accommodate the smaller or larger leads, uh, component leads, uh, as needed. On the right-hand side is a uh, is a ver same version of that adapter board, but with a slit in the copper. Um, exposed such that you can hold an SMT, a surface mount component part, into uh, across either of those slots. And then um, if you hold it like with a non-capacitive or a non-conductive device, I used a pen, uh, a tip, tip of a pen, as you see in the lower photo uh, below this, to hold the component in place. You can actually measure the component pretty easily. Um, notice that the uh, the copper clad boards have, uh, are soldered where the connections to the BNCs, and I'm, I keep saying that, don't I, uh, to the uh, five-way binding posts are, as well as uh, wherever we want to make contact uh, with a component. This is to prevent oxidation, the ultimate oxidation that forms on the copper from affecting um, the, conduct, uh, the connection of the component to to the, uh, the measurement system. So it's a little bit of a trick and all it takes is just a little bit of tinning uh, with the solder. And for those uh, slots, just as an FYI, the slots in the copper, um, what I first tried, let's see, uh, the one on the left, I tried um, taking two very closely spaced parallel cuts with, um, with a razor blade, repeated cuts with a razor blade in order to provide the separation in copper. And it was, uh, it didn't turn out as great as I thought it would and it was a little bit hard to do uh, to, to pick out the residual stuff in between uh, the cuts. So what I did next was I took my handy dandy Dremel tool with a uh, with the end mill, a five millimeter end mill. Um, it's, it's the one that we use in the Islander pad cutter from years ago. <laughs> the diamond tip just stays with you forever. And um, tipping that ever so slightly and slowly moving it across the surface of the copper clad, I was able to create a Okay, we'll finish up here. I think Joe's having internet connection problems. Um, so anyways, just finishing up what I said, I used the Dremel tool to very carefully draw along um, a felt-tip marker pen to keep me going straight. And uh, it worked out really well. So as you can see there, that worked out well. Uh, just a little bit of a tip to the wise if and when you do this. Um, number one is make sure you put those scribes on both sides of the device, uh, both sides of the copper clad because the bottom side sometimes is going to connect to the top side by means of the of the five-way binding post and so there's like a, you got to make sure that the scribes are on the bottom side too also you want to connect the top and bottom sides of each of the three sections that you've isolated um, lastly when you do connect to the five-way binding post after tinning make sure you have to cinch it down pretty well because you want to make sure that you got good contact and a lot of guys have indicated that they've used this in the AADE meter as well uh, which is quite understandable because it's uses the same kind of principle with the five-way binding posts and as I think someone mentioned here I, I'm, I'm, and, and also offline um, if you were to use the same adapter concept and put some um, IC socket, so maybe a SIP, a single inline IC socket on each of those three isolated sections, you have further uh, capability for plugging in leads of components and maybe even quicker, easier, faster, and, and so on. So there's all sorts of techniques, and there's a lot of guys who have done a lot of experimentation and, and talked about it. And lastly, down at the bottom, you see five photographs of the device in action. Um, you've undoubtedly been looking at it uh, while I've been speaking. And um, the only thing that I didn't show, or one of the things that I didn't show, was the transistor and the FET display. I think I'll do that, too, just to kind of round it off. But um, it, it's really chock full of it. It delivers a lot of information to you. And uh, I was quite pleased with it. It's kind of a good blend between the L. Uh, the LC meter from almost all electronics and the uh, peak measurement uh, meter that um, um, that Joe had mentioned earlier. So it's uh, yet another device that's within arm's reach on the bench that's, that's pretty much a, a required thing, in my opinion, when you're on the bench and doing some home brewing. you got to know what component you're using. And by the way, it's a real easy thing to double check. It's a very good thing, too, to double check a component that you grab from the parts bin or even from a pre-arranged uh, parts kit. Maybe that 10.0 or 10K resistor really isn't 10K. Maybe it's 1K because you misread the label. Or maybe it's 1K because they mislabeled it. That has happened. So a quick throwing that, uh, throwing it onto the meter such as this, or a DVM or anything else, it's a good practice to get into. Um, saves a lot of heartache down downstream. And um, I think you would appreciate finding this kind of a problem earlier than it would be later. So that's uh, that's about our story here. It looks like Looks like Joe's dropped offline. And Joe is offline, but he's just called. Hi, Joe. 
No, the server's going. We're going fine. I think your your connection to the server um, got lost. I'll, I'll talk to you later. Anyway, anyways, Joe is uh, Joe was sorry. He passes on his uh, his regrets for being able to for, for dropping off. But we wanted to thank everybody here for. Well, first of all, maybe we we were rushing toward the end. We have just a few minutes. Whether it's the packaging at the end or whether it is the component measurement and the measurement of um, the component parameters. Are there any kind of uh, um, are there any kind of questions that you might have along the way here before we uh, before we do wrap it up? Packaging is one of my little it's 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 kind of like one of my favorite things to do. I don't do a I do an okay job. A lot of guys do a lot better. A lot of guys do a lot worse. Doesn't make the project work any better, but it sure is a lot of fun and sort of like uh, therapeutic. That's that's the way that I look at it. So I I've used some tricks along the way to kind of make my projects look uh, semi reasonable. Um, any questions? Okay, Rick, what you got? I was just looking at the uh, the schematic of the whole tester there and thinking that would be a great 10-minute uh, analyze this uh, module for uh, some time in the future. You're right. It would be. I was impressed by the uh, the few number of components that were actually used in the in the instrument uh, compared to its great range or flexibility and what it can measure. Um, yeah, the the discrete components on the left side are really quite interesting, and maybe that would be fun to go through it at some time. Um, that reminds me, and, and part of the function is a power on, automatic power on, power off, which I've started using that technique uh, um, in my circuits. Kind of recently, and it's it's really handy. gets rid of uh, an ex- well, gets rid of an expensive uh, power switch, a toggle switch, and it's more elegant than a power switch. And um, it uses uh, some MOS devices that are low turn-on voltage and generally low cost as well. Uh, but it's just kind of fun dealing with that because you get a little bit more control to the processor, which can turn itself off at any uh, at a prescribed time. In this case here, when the measurement is done, if you've configured the device to be powered down when the measurement is done, you can save or say it can you can run a long time on a nine volt battery and that was the that was the main purpose for that. Other questions? Yeah, George, I got one for you. Sure, Frank, go ahead. Uh, talking about testing, um, often w- when you need to test something, it would be a whole lot easier if you could test it in circuit, but a lot of us have learned the hard way that that doesn't always work. Does uh, anyone have any tips for testing in circuit? Well, we'll open it up here, and maybe there are some others. I don't, other than to know that there are some measurements that can be made in a powered-down circuit, if that's what you're asking. So you could, for example, measure ESR, I think. Alan, maybe you want to comment on this. I think you can measure ESR uh, in circuit, yeah, the ESR of a capacitor in circuit. And of course, if the power is off to the, to the, the circuit that the capacitor is used in. Is that right, Alan? Uh, well, sometimes. You know, the pro- Usually the first requirement of testing any component in circuit is that whatever test signal you apply to it is such that uh, the voltage that's impressed across that component is not going to be high enough to turn on any other thing that might be in parallel with it, like a junction, you know, a base emitter junction or a diode or something like that. So you want the test voltages to be limited to, you know, a 1 or 200 millivolts. That's kind of the first requirement. But it's still not always going to help you um, or, you know, solve the problem. You know, a, a, an example is, you know, ESR, for example. You'd say, well, if the circuit's powered off and I use a, an ESR meter that applies no more than 100 millivolts to a device, you know, shouldn't that work? Well, maybe it will, but what if there's another capacitor in parallel with the one that you're testing that has a nice low ESR? You know, that's going to kind of short out, if you will, the component that you're trying to test that might have a bad ESR. So there's no uh, free lunch, there's no panacea, there's no way of, you know, you know technique that will always uh, give you, you know, a, a successful in-circuit test, unfortunately. So, um, but uh, there are some, again, there's, it depends on, mainly on the circuit and the tester that you're using, but uh, there's no guarantees. Yeah, I hear you. And indeed, uh, um, it, it makes sense relative to other comp- anything else that there could have an effect on a measurement. Sometimes all you're looking for is a measurement that's good enough. For example, I do a lot of continuity testing um, in circuit uh, with the power off, of course. But uh, you know, a short circuit is going to dominate anything else that might be um, might be connected to it usually. So that's that's a safe assumption. Frank, was that kind of like what you had in mind? Yes, it is, and and what you and Alan both said uh, makes a lot of sense. Thank you. 
All right. Um, other questions here. Howie asks about uh, uh, superposition, Thevenin, and Norton analysis. As far as uh, as far as what Howie, as far as um, measurement in circuit uh, components affecting uh, affecting uh, reading. Yeah, I, I would think that you could use Thevenin or Norton analysis uh, in circuit uh, as far as uh, as far as not having to disassemble or remove a component and test it. Okay, and I think I understand what you're trying, what you're saying, in that you might be able to understand the kind of reading just by looking at the components and um, understanding what in, might be in parallel and/or series, and kind of have a range of expected voltages and or, or readings. And uh, sometimes also you have to consider if uh, your probe, the positive probe, if the red lead is the positive voltage of a signal that's being applied or the negative voltage. And that can affect, of course, a reading that you're doing with on diodes, for example. And also, you need to be a little bit careful on doing that kind of a thing with some ICs that are powered down, because you never want to have a gate voltage, the voltage on a gate, exceed that of the power supply. Uh, that's that's usually a bad thing. Oftentimes, it's protected, but oftentimes, it's a it's a bad thing too. Um, other questions? All right, then. I guess let's, uh, there is one. Uh, I guess you heard what my my. Uh, my phone ringtone is it's my ham call sign. I made it. I think you can, there. I think there are programs around that you can that, that do that now. But what I did is I recorded my call sign as a um, that's my that's my fist, my own fist re- recording at maybe about 25 words a minute or something. And then I recorded that and then I used a program that turns an MP3 into the ringtone. And, and then I put that on my in my iTunes and I synced with my my phone with my my iTunes folder and voila it became a list an item in my ringtone list and I just selected I have other ones too so based on this is kind of cool based on the number that's calling I can I can um, select a ringtone that is either general purpose such as like what that was or I can have it be home you know da 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 did or my daughter Liz and do her and so I can know at a moment like who's calling Ellen and Morse code but of course that's just very commonplace these days relative to distinctive ringtones and then you get to know who's calling just based on whatever ringtone that you selected so more than wanted to know but that's that's the way it is here alrighty thank you everybody for attending this has been a, an interesting show kind of back to basics and it's uh, it's been pleasurable uh, the more that I understand about components and circuits the better I feel that I'm able to be working with somebody else's design or working on a design of my own get trying to get it working, trying to understand why it isn't working, which is more often the case than not at first. And uh, always, if you go back to the basics and understand, um, as Howie was saying, you know, do a Thevenin's analysis of of a circuit to understand the composite um, resistance um, of of a network um, or understand what the frequency of operation is of your components or understand how temperature can affect a component's uh, value, you'll have a much better feel for how that circuit is going to operate, as I said, outside the window, so in the twilight zone. And uh, when you're outside the normal normal uh, operating parameters is when you have to kind of watch out because things do things, uh, components do strange things when you're when you're in that space. And remember, uh, remember good old Dirty Harry saying a man's got a meter's got to know its limitations. So you got to know exactly what you're dealing with when you're working with circuits. Thank you everybody for uh, attending. Chat with the designers. We'll see you all in episode number 54, which happens in two weeks. We're going to get back then to a little bit of Arduino work with. Uh, the first multi-node example experiment with our ham station mesh networking activities. So um, until then, good night all.